this. Um, First Thessalonians was all about the return of the Lord. And there were, there was some depth to it that I really didn't have time to get into because we were going uh, verse by verse. And I wanted to spend time in between the two books because not next Tuesday, because we'll be th- in Thanksgiving, but the week after, we're going to start Second Thessalonians, which is all about not the rapture of the church, but the second coming of Christ. And there's a difference. And I'm going to show you the difference tonight and sort of lay the groundwork for going into Second Thessalonians. And I want us to be clear about this. Amen? So let's pray together. And we're going to look tonight exclusively and in depth at the difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Father, we thank you right now for your blessing. We pray you'll open our understanding to the Word of God. Speak to us, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Open our understanding, and we thank you for it. Will you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, tonight I receive your word. Bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, preach to your neighbor and tell him the Lord's coming back soon. The rapture and the second coming, the difference. Now, we've seen in our study of 1 Thessalonians that the rapture of the church is the overarching theme of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Mention of this incredible event is found in every chapter. Without doubt, the Thessalonians had been taught the truth about the rapture. Paul had gone into that with them at length. The truth of the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming back. And any church that tells you otherwise, you need to get out of. Bluntly. You need to go away because the return of Christ is a, is a foundation concept, a foundation truth of the New Testament. So don't hang around anywhere where they tell you that's not real, that's metaphorical or whatever. It's not. He's coming back. Now, this knowledge of the Lord coming back spurred them on to win souls for Christ. If you really believe he's coming back, you're going to testify and you're going to win people to Jesus. They wanted to be found active in his service, uh, in the center of his will, waiting expectantly when he returned. And one of the primary teachings of many of Jesus' parables was that if you expected his return, it affected the way you lived. You will live in purity if you believe that at any time he can come back. John said, he that has this hope, that is of the return of Christ, in himself is purified, goes through a purification, lives in purity because of the possibility that at any moment the trumpet could blow and Jesus is uh, returned. Now, at this point, at the end of our series, I want to distinguish between the two comings of Christ. Now, let me explain. The Jews of Jesus' day failed to recognize the fact that the Old Testament foretold two comings of Christ. All right? The rabbis read the glowing promises of the prophets of a sovereign Messiah, and they looked for a Messiah who would crush their enemies, in their case, the Romans, make Jerusalem the capital of a new world empire, and reign over the entire world. That's the Messiah they were looking for. They looked for the one who would beat swords into plowshares 
and make their desert blossom as the rose and cause the lion to lay down with the lamb. They were looking for the, the Messiah that Isaiah so beautifully described in talking about the millennium. That's the Messiah. That's why they didn't accept Jesus when he came. Wait a minute. This can't be him. Born in a feeding trough behind a cheap hotel with nobody there and no money and just a bunch of cattle standing around? No, 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 that's not him. They didn't understand because they also read of a suffering Messiah. They read of one who would be despised and rejected of men. They read of one who would be betrayed by a friend and sold for the price of a slave. Isaiah talked about him as well, Isaiah 53. They read of one whose hands and feet would be pierced, Psalms 22. Who would be given vinegar mingled with gall to drink, for whose vesture people would cast lots. They read of him as well. And the rabbi, the rabbis puzzled over these seemingly conflicting scriptures. It's one or the other. What, is, what are we reading about here? And their solution was to assume not two comings, but two messiahs. One who would be a sufferer and one who would be a savior. That was the conclusion they came to. Now they were wrong in their conclusion. There were not to be two Christs. There were to be two comings. All right? Two comings. And that's what they didn't get. Now, in relation to the rapture and the second coming, many Christians have made the very same kind of mistake. All right? Some scriptures portray the return of Christ as imminent. could happen at any moment. Other scriptures are clear that many things must happen before the Lord's return. Some scriptures point to the date of the Lord's return as the best kept secret in the universe. Yet other scriptures point to the Lord's return as being very predictable. We read about these two different returns and we get confused. Attempts to reconcile these seemingly conflicting scriptures have resulted in a bewildering mix of conflicting positions. You've probably heard of these million dollar theological words. We've got premillennialists, postmillennialists, and amillennialists. Now, I'm a panmillennialist. I believe it's all going to pan out. But we really do. We have, now, what do I mean by those three big words? We have those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, which we do, I do. Those who espouse a mid-tribulation rapture, and those who believe the church is going to go home before the tribulation begins. That, that's, that's where we stand. Those who think that the church will be raptured halfway through the great tribulation, and those who think the church is going to go through the whole thing. Through that terrible time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation of which has never been seen in the world and never will be equaled again. The worst moment in the history of mankind, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, let's try unpacking this theological baggage in a way that makes sense. There are to be two comings of Christ. Let's look at that. The Lord is coming first in the air to receive his own to himself. Later, he's coming to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. There are to be two returns of Christ. 
He is coming first for his saints. Say with me, that would be me. He's coming first for his saints, but he's coming later with his saints. Okay? He is coming, his coming for his saints is called the rapture. His coming with his saints is called the return. And there is a distinct difference. The coming of the Lord for his saints in the rapture is an imminent, undated, undated, unknown event. Something that can take place at any moment. It could happen before I stop teaching tonight. That's my dream. I, I dream I'm quoting a verse and all of a sudden, you know, all right. And this coming, this rapture, the first one for his saints is his coming for the church. And it's the coming that predominates the eschatology or the prediction of future events of Paul's first Thessalonian letter. And in first Thessalonians, he's talking about the rapture, the Lord coming for his saints, not with his saints. That's second Thessalonians. And we're going to see that. So keep that in mind, very important, the coming of the Lord with his saints is a dated event. It's not unknown. Certain things have got to happen before it can take place. For instance, the Antichrist must come and briefly rule the world before the second coming with the saints can take place. There's got to be the revealing of that man of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist we hear so much about. He will show up and he will, and we're going to look at that in just a moment, but that's got to happen before he can come with his saints, but not for his saints. This coming has to do primarily with Israel. That is the second return of Christ with his saints. That has to do primarily with Israel and the world and is the coming that predominates the eschatology of second Thessalonians, which, as I said, we're going to look at next. So don't miss that series. It is so powerful looking at the Antichrist the great deception and apostasy coming upon the world and all that we're going to see uh, or the world is going to see taking place before the second return of Christ. Powerful, powerful letter, that second Thessalonians. But now, it's important to note that God has always set prophetic dates with future events related to the nation of Israel. When it comes to Israel, God has always been a date setter. For instance, when God promised Abraham a land that would stretch all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates, he told him that it would not be in his lifetime. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, but you won't see it. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. On the contrary, God told him 400 years would elapse before the fulfillment of that promise. Did you know that God told him that? Abraham's descendants said, God, we're going to be persecuted in a foreign land, and they would be set free in the fourth generation, a generation being a hundred years. He said, they're going to be set free in the fourth generation, but until then, and look, I got, I have the verse right here, quote, God said to Abram, know for sure that your children and those born after them will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. There they will be servants and suffer for how long? Notice when it comes to Israel, God sets dates. God gives times. God has a calendar. And God tells us often in his word 
exactly what he's going to do with Israel as relates as it relates to timing dates he said they're going to be servants and suffer for 400 years then verse 14 God says but I of Genesis 15 verse 14 Genesis 15 but I will punish the nation that they will serve and we saw that Pharaoh and all the Egyptians punished and later they will come out with many riches you will live many years Abraham you're gonna die in peace and be buried then your great-great-grandchildren will return here return back to the promised land once they have been delivered from Egypt after 400 years now guess get this I want you to understand this tonight a biblically literate Hebrew living in the Egyptian ghetto during the days of Pharaoh and before Moses came on the scene could have known for sure that Moses was the emancipator and that the date foretold had arrived he could have known by the word God gave Abraham Moses represented the fourth generation there was Levi Kohath Amram Moses four generations God set a date circled it on his calendar and kept it and in the 400th year Moses stepped in and said let my people go and they were delivered crossed the sea entered the wilderness and you know the rest of the story and ultimately returned to their land just as God had said that's why Joseph told them he said listen when you get delivered from here be sure you carry me with you my bones with you because I know the word of the Lord over us and I may have had my work in Egypt but this ain't my home I want you to carry my bones to the promised land so when they went across the Red Sea they had the bones of Joseph with them because he knew the word of the Lord okay now another example of God's perfect timing with the nation of Israel would be the Babylonian captivity the captivity said God would last for 70 years if you knew the word of the Lord and you were one of the captives you knew we're, we're going to be here 70 years. God has told us. He's got it on his calendar. The date is set. Look what it says in Jeremiah 25, verse 11. Quote, God speaking to the people of Israel. This whole land will be a waste and a cause of fear. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. When it comes to Israel, God sets dates. He gives times. It's on his calendar, and he tells you what he's going to do. And this is going to matter more in just a moment. Now, when Darius the Mede entered Babylon in the wake of Cyrus, whose coming had been foretold by Isaiah, Daniel realized that the time of captivity was over. He even knew who the liberator's name was going to be, Cyrus, because Isaiah had told him in Isaiah 44, verse 28, quote, it is I, God who says of Cyrus he is my shepherd and he will do all that I want him to do even saying of Jerusalem she will be built and of the house of God your first stones will be laid again it was Cyrus who told the children of Israel you're free to go back home and rebuild the land and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall and it happened after 70 years in our God an incredible God who knows the end from the beginning 
Now, it was time for God to act, and Daniel, after when he saw all of these things taking place, he knew the time was up, he gave himself to prayer, and God sent an angel to assure Daniel that things were proceeding according to plan. Now, freeze that a minute, because when the angel appeared to Daniel and confirmed to him that, yes, indeed, the time of captivity was up, the angel now began to share with Daniel things that matter to you and to me right now. The angel revealed to Daniel a new cycle of time that was soon to begin. God showed Daniel that there would now be a period of 490 years. Five centuries saved 10 years. 490 years. Then the angel told him, after 483 of those years are up, the predicted Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be cut off, killed. Now, Daniel is sitting here receiving this from an angel. The angel says, Daniel, there's a new timetable now over Israel, 490 years. And you need to know, Daniel, that after 483 of those years, Messiah, my Savior, the bruiser of Satan's head, the predicted Redeemer, will be killed. The remaining period of seven years would remain in suspension, awaiting certain events and further revelations. A starting date was given for the commencement of this new period of 490 years. It is amazing that a biblically literate Jew living in the time of Christ could have set the date for the crucifixion of Christ to the day based on Daniel's prophecy. One commentator has shown this, that the period of 483 years expired the day Jesus rode in triumph into Jerusalem. From Daniel to the first Palm Sunday, 483 years. And shortly thereafter, Messiah cut off. Now, there's seven years remaining. Seven years left. It will be the same with the return of Christ to the earth with his saints to set up his millennial kingdom. The timing is in the hands of God. The pending final seven years of Daniel's prophecy now awaits fulfillment. We know it as the great tribulation period, the seven years we see laid out in front of us in John's revelation. It will begin when the Antichrist signs a seven-year treaty with the nation of Israel. I, I never cease to be amazed. How many presidents now, up to the current administration, have done their best to get a peace treaty signed with Israel? How much of the world is now focused on that little slice of land called Jerusalem and Israel? Zechariah predicted that in the last days before the return of Christ, that Israel, that Jerusalem would be a troublesome, burdensome stone for the whole world. Who would have ever thought this little tiny slice of land compared to the whole globe could afflict and concern and become the focus of the whole world? But it has. Now, we see president after president after president trying to get a peace treaty signed because they want it on their resume. They want to be the big healer. 
of this incredible source of trouble and vexation that's on the whole world. They want to be the hero. But God's not going to let it happen. God's not going to let it happen until the man of sin, the man of perdition, Antichrist, does it. If you wake up and a peace treaty has been signed with Israel, call and see if I'm home. <laughs> call, call your neighbors. Call other church members. See if they're there. Because when that seven-year treaty is signed, somebody's going to do it. We can feel it in the air. Somebody's going to do it. It's too much a focus Centuries ago, it wasn't the focus at all. You know why? Because Israel didn't even exist. But since 1948, it's the focus. It's, it's the focus with several administrations. Now, somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to do it. And it's, it's going to be the man of sin, the man of perdition, the man of evil, Satan's child, Antichrist. He will do it. And when he does it, the hourglass is turned upside down. And there are seven years in it. What seven years is it? It's those last seven years. 483 up to the time of Christ. Then seven years went into limbo, waiting for this time. When that peace treaty is signed and they make what, what Daniel called a pact with hell, then those last seven years of the 490 kick in. This will signal the beginning of the first or the final seven-year countdown to the return of Christ with his saints. Halfway through this period, here's what's going to happen. The first three and a half years of the seven, the world is going to be under a great deception. Second Thessalonians is going to talk to us about that. They're going to be under a great delusion that God sends to them because they rejected Messiah. God's going to send it. A great delusion. What is the great delusion? It is Antichrist. The man of sin will be the great delusion. And they will herald him, praise him, call him a political genius, a, a strategic genius, a, a, a great leader, a, the answer. He'll be treated like a Messiah. I used to have a hard time believing that America could follow, uh, fall for that, but I don't anymore. The whole world will follow after the beast and follow after the Antichrist and be infatuated and mesmerized and hypnotized by his charisma and the spiritual anointing that is on him that is not of God but is a demonic Hitler-esque anointing. What he'll do is three and a half years into what everybody thinks now peace has arrived. And what did Thessalonians tell us about that? When they say peace, peace. Then comes sudden destruction, like a woman upon, in travail with a child. And there will be no escape. No man will escape. Three and a half years of the seven, everybody will get a mark on their hand. There will be a one-world currency, one-world religious system, a one global, a single global political system. You will swipe your hand under a, a scanner that reads your mark, and you will buy and sell with that mark. If you don't have it, you will not be able to involve yourself in the retail markets of the world. 
You'll walk through a supermarket with all your stuff and just run your hand or your forehead will be scanned. It'll go straight into your bank, re remove the money, and there will be a one-world political system that has your number, has your name, knows where you live, can track you at any time of the day or night. Those that accept Christ during the tribulation period, and there will be tribulation saints, will refuse the mark as John told them to, and they'll be hunted, stalked, and martyred. Interestingly, the, the book of Revelation says beheaded, which is what Islam does to you. It will be, it will be 1984 squared, 1984 to the 10th power. And this man, this Antichrist, will be the most wicked, evil, malicious, diabolical individual to ever trod planet Earth. He will have with him a, what's called the false prophet, the beast. The beast is, will be a spiritual leader. The Antichrist will be a political leader. The beast will be a spiritual leader, and the Bible says in Revelation, he will do signs and wonders that are supernatural in origin before the eyes of the world. He will call fire from heaven like Elijah did. The world will look at this and go, they have to be of God. He has to be of God because look at the supernatural signs and wonders. But it will be lying signs and wonders, the Bible says. So you'll have a dynamic duo, sort of a Jesus and John the Baptist in an evil manifestation. Antichrist, healing the Israeli conflict. Antichrist, bringing in a one-world economic system, a one-world currency, a one-world government. You'll have his spiritual cohort, the beast, who will cause the whole world to wonder after Antichrist. He will point to him like John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and say, there's your answer, there's your man, there's your solution. And it says the whole world will be under a great delusion and will believe it. Can you not see this being set up right now? I mean, all the technology is there. It wasn't there a hundred years ago. It's there now. All the technology, they're already chipping people. They're already putting chips under their skin. They're already deciding they're going to put a chip under the skin to track Alzheimer's patients and people like that. It'll come in under the guise of looking like it's for a good reason. But the day will come when it is seized by, the technology is seized by this Antichrist government, this controller. Well, halfway through the, the seven years, three and a half years in, Antichrist will tear up his treaty because he's a liar. He will occupy Jerusalem. The Jews will have rebuilt the temple. They will already have reinstituted their sacrificial forms of worship. They will be thinking that the Antichrist is the greatest thing since peanut butter. They'll already be going, this is the one we've been waiting for all this time. Because look, he brought peace, but he's also letting us have our religion. But he'll only do it for three and a half years. He'll seize the rebuilt Jewish temple, and there are plans to rebuild it right now. The blueprints are in Jerusalem right now to rebuild the temple. And he will set up his image <clears throat> within the temple. Now, we don't know what the image is, but with all the technology coming now, I think it's very possible it could be something 
that like a laser shoots and forms an image of a person, holographic, there, in the temple, and here's what he'll say, you are now to worship that image and me. It's Nebuchadnezzar revisited. Nebuchadnezzar built the great big statue and said, when I blow the trumpets, I want you to bow down and worship me. And if you don't, you're going into the oven. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the oven. And you know the rest of the story? This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar revisited. He'll set up his image within the temple, something that is his image. And he will then declare that his image is to be worshipped. He will inaugurate the, that fearful time of persecution known as the Great Tribulation in the time of Jacob's trouble. And when he goes into that Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple and establishes his image, he will sit in the Holy of Holies and declare that he is God and he is to be worshipped. And that is, that is the pulling of the pin of the grenade of the last three and a half years. Now hell on earth breaks loose, literally, where Jesus said, if those days weren't shortened, there isn't any flesh on earth that would be saved, for it will be the worst period of time in the whole history of the world, put all the wars together, all the bloodshed, all the pain, all the ruin, nothing will match, because this is the war of Megiddo, the war of Armageddon, when blood will be as high as a horse's bridle for miles and miles and miles, and it's what Jesus returns to stop. At this point, from the point of him going in the temple and doing this, according to the Bible, 1,260 days will be left until the visible return of Christ to put an end to these horrors, judge the earth, and set up his kingdom. We know because God dates the things that have to do with Israel. The biblically literate Jew living in those days of terror will be able to do a day-to-day -day countdown when he sees Antichrist going to the temple and say, I'm God, start worshiping me, he can mark it down, 1,260 days to go, and he'll be back. 1,259, 1,258, 12, hang on, 1257, Setting dates has to do with the nation of Israel, not with the church. The coming of Christ for the church is an undated, imminent event, the actual time of which is a secret known only to God. Here's the best-kept secret in the universe, the rapture, when it will happen. That's the best-kept because even Jesus doesn't know. Jesus said, I don't know, but only my Father in heaven knows. So God has it in his mind when he's going to turn to the sun and say, all right, that's it. Go get your bride. Angel, blow the trumpet. And it's going to happen like a thief in the night. Nobody's going to be expecting it. It's going to be a shock. It's going to stun a lot of people. It's going to take a lot of people off guard. They will have gotten lax. They will have begun to get worldly. They will have decided that, well, we've waited a long time. It's never happened. So I'm just going to go do my own thing and quit all, uh, thinking about all this God stuff and Bible stuff. And he'll come. The gist of this is that at any time the rapture could occur. Nothing needs to take place for the rapture to occur. The rapture is one of seven mysteries revealed to the Apostle Paul. What is a mystery? It's the Greek word mysterion, and here's what it means. Something heretofore hidden that is now revealed. 
something we never would have known, and it's always been hidden, but now it's revealed. Paul received seven mysteries during his ministry. Paul was God's chosen vessel to receive understanding of these mysteries, the mystery of Christ's cross, that's in Romans, mystery of Christ's church, that's in Ephesians, mystery of Christ's coming, that's Thessalonians, mystery of Christ's gospel, the mystery of the age of grace, the mystery of godliness, and the mystery of iniquity. He received a revelation on those seven mysteries, things that were before hidden but were made known through the Apostle Paul. As to the rapture, this mystery, formerly hidden, was first made known to Paul. And so he writes of it two times. And I want us to read it because we're finishing 1 Thessalonians, what it's all been about. And I want you to know, before you get home, he could come. No prophecy needs to be fulfilled. He could come at any time in the rapture. So let's read them. Uh, here's the first one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, 15 to 17. He says, we tell you this as it came where, everybody? From the Lord. Those of us who are alive when the Lord comes again will not go ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud call. The King James says, shout. The head angel will speak with a loud voice. The trumpet will sound. And first, those who belong to Christ will come out of their graves to meet the Lord. Isn't that what it says? He says, where did this come from? This understanding, this mystery came from the Lord. And he revealed it to Paul so that we would understand it. So those who have died, tomorrow I'm burying a man who's been with me for 25 years, Ernest Scoggins, went to be with the Lord this week. I'm going to bury his body, but his spirit is already with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And the day is going to come when Ernest is going to be called out of this, the grave that I'm going to put him in tomorrow. He's only there temporarily. It's only a hotel. Y'all are looking at me like, you really believe? Of course. Hey, Jesus was dead, buried, and God raised him from the dead. And he said, he's the first fruits. He's the first one to go. And there's going to be many multitudes after him. You, me, resurrected. That's what it says. This is a mystery before hidden, but now made known. Then those of us who are still living here on earth, sitting, waiting in McDonald's, flying on a jet, walking around in Blockbuster, walking your dog down the street, sitting in your living room. Dun, 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 dun. It says, we'll be caught up, snatched out together with them in the clouds. We will meet the Lord in the sky and be with him forever. That's the Lord coming for his saints. That's the rapture. Very different. The world won't know it, but the church will. Now, here's the other one in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Paul talking about it to the Corinthian church. For sure, he says, for sure, I am telling you, a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, no longer than it takes for the eye to close and open. The Christians who have died will be raised. Everybody just blink. 
blink, out came grandma, blink, out came grandpa, blink. Blink. Blink, you're here, blink, you're there. Some people think, we're just going to float up like the angels. No, you're not floating anywhere. Blink. Close your eyes and open them. You're there. The Christians who have died will be raised. It will happen when the last horn sounds. The dead will be raised never to die again. Then the rest of us who are alive will be changed. And we're going to put on our glorified body. The same body Jesus had who could walk through a locked door, but then on the other side of it, eat fish. Who could walk on water. Who could lift his hands when he was done talking to his disciples and ascend into heaven. He would think and he would be there. Not held by gravity, time, or space. A glorified body. Can't age, can't wrinkle, can't get sick can't warp, can't shrivel, can't all the terrible things that happen as you age. (laughs) It can't do any of that. No more going to curves. No more going to Elaine Powers. No more weights. No more running. No more dieting. Glorified body. That's what it says. Ooh, I'm going to love mine. I, what about you? I can't wait to be it. Just think and be there. No more headaches, no more extra strength, Excedrin. No more Excedrin PM to help you sleep. You won't need to sleep. None of that. Eternity with a glorified body talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. The rest of us who are alive will be changed. John said, when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We will be instantly changed. And it happens in when he comes for his church. Now soon, in God's unknown timetable, the order is going to be given. The trumpet will be sounded in glory. The same voice that called Lazarus from the dead will shout. By the same power that was utilized to raise Jesus from the dead, those that died in Christ will be raised from the grave. They will receive brand new resurrected bodies like Jesus did. Then those believers yet alive on earth will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected, unknown to the world at large, and will precede the final seven years shown to the prophet Daniel. And he closed out with this. Can we read it together? Comfort one another. I'm going to tell Alma Scoggins tomorrow, who was married to Ernest for 61 years. I'm going to tell her. I'm going to say, Alma, we're not sorrowing as those who have no hope. Because according to the scriptures, this is temporary. Now, you're not going to be married to Ernest in heaven. But you will see him again. And we're to comfort one another with these words. Because even though we die, we shall live. If we put our faith in him. Can we stand together? When will we be here next week? Tuesday. Tuesday night. Spread the word. Let's thank the Lord for his incredible promises. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to Paul this mysterion, this mystery. 
opening his understanding to write by the word of the Lord on this incredible event when the Lord comes for his people. Lord, help us to walk in light of that truth and that reality, to live our lives to the glory of God, to serve you with every chance we get, to lift your name high and live in a way that should you come right now, we would meet you with a smile. And help us, Lord, as a church to evangelize this world, to win as many as we can, as quickly as we can, get them under the blood of Jesus and in the ark of the new covenant before that terrible time period arrives. We ask you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Let's just worship before we go tonight. Come on, everybody, lift your hands.